I want to start this morning with a question. It's a loaded question, admittedly. It's a tough question. Question nonetheless, it's relevant. Why does God willingly allow tragedy to befall good people? You ever thought about it? Have you ever been one of those good people that considered it? That question, in a lot of senses, is one of the most difficult and challenging questions humanity is forced to grapple with. Anyone who believes in God struggles with this particular question. And you know, as you contemplate it, you know, it's one thing when evil people experience tragedy. Like, we kind of get it. We, we hardly bat in an eye, right, when video surfaced of Muammar Gaddafi being executed in the streets of Lebanon. I bet you you didn't shed a tear when Saddam Hussein was hung for his crimes against his own people. When we see evil people suffer, we don't struggle with that, do we? What we struggle with more than anything is when tragedy strikes the innocent. I mean, what can really be said when a child dies a brutal death or when a mother of five is diagnosed with an untreatable, incurable cancer? How in the world can we find any type of rational reason to explain the mass shootings at churches or schools, or even the pervasive killing of Christians today across the Middle East. It would seem that when atrocities happen to innocents, innocent people, because we can't rationalize the acts themselves, our culture attempts a substitute, doesn't it? When we can't rationalize or compartmentalize or, or understand as almost a form of national distraction, immediately what does our culture do? We have to find some way of stopping it from happening again or at least seeing something good come as a result. We have to blame something, right? We blame guns, the system, a flag. We do this in a sense because we have to satisfy some need of explanation, some need of reason, some need for purpose. This question, it's a tough one. And while we could approach this topic from a multitude of angles, and there are a multitude of ways to go about it, I can say with complete certainty that one of the reasons God allows such tragedy to befall good people boils down to the simple fact that often the way good people handle tragedy ends up challenging many of our incorrect societal perceptions concerning God. In a lot of sense, sometimes tragedy is used by God to be very instructive. Now, before we get to the question, before we unpack an answer from our text, let's kind of recap, just for a moment, where we left things off last Sunday. The Apostle Paul, even though he's in the center of God's will, and he's been equipped with promises from Jesus, the journey itself has not been smooth sailing. As we saw last Sunday, Paul and all those on board this Alexandrian ship headed to Italy, They've been caught in a wicked storm that's lasted, as we'll see this morning, for the greater part of about two weeks. 
We also noted that for Julius and the rest of the shipmasters, this was a storm of correction. They should have listened to Paul. He advised that they port in fair havens, that they stay there for the winter, but they didn't listen. And as a result, this tempest arose. It blew them off course. It caught them in its grasp. This storm of correction, we'll see, was used by God to teach these men some valuable lessons and to reveal his love and his providence and his grace in a radical way. But in regards to Paul, we also noted that there was a divine purpose behind this storm. This storm was not an accident. Though Paul was bound for Rome, as we'll see, God clearly had a stop along the journey that was not part of the original manifest. For Paul and his companions, this tempest, we'll see, was a directive storm used by God specifically to orchestrate events in order to place his man exactly where he wanted him to be in order to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Verse 27, we'll start there and get a running start. We read that now when it was the 14th night, when it had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. So they took some soundings, and they found it to be 20 fathoms. When they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Isn't it interesting that fearing lest they should run aground, everyone on this ship prayed. I mean, they all hit their knees and prayed for the sun to come up, for daylight. They knew they were getting close to land. They knew the ship was doomed. They're just praying that they can just make it to another morning. 1942, serving as the U.S. military chaplain during the Battle of Bataan, one of the bloodiest campaigns, most brutal campaigns in the South Pacific, Reverend William Thomas Cummings famously told his men that, quote, there are no atheists in foxholes. Part of the story that's not often told is that this reverend would end up dying with the men that he served. You know, there's something about the threat of death, isn't there? That forces a person to consider what we'd rather ignore. I mean, you can live your life for yourself, not think of death, not think of what would come next, but when your life is threatened, immediately you can no longer dodge the obvious. You've ignored it, but you can ignore it no longer when you're faced with eternity. When you're left to consider the afterlife, what comes next? Am I ready? Am I prepared? Do I even know? You know, I'm of the opinion that in his great love for us, for even those of us who rebel against him and run from him, sometimes God allows crisis into our lives for such a purpose often to drive us to our knees. Well, we're told that as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, 
you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff, and they let it fall off, presumably into the sea. Now, this is a fascinating development, isn't it? I mean, everyone on board knows that the ship is approaching land. It's the whole context. They're dropping these soundings, it's 20 fathoms, then it's 15 fathoms. Things are getting shallower, indicating land is ahead, even though they can't see it, it's dark. They know that the process of taking these measurements only serves to confirm what Paul had already told them. If you recall last Sunday, Paul had made it clear, we're gonna run ashore, we'll run aground, the ship will be lost, but no one's life will be. This is confirming what Paul has said would happen. And although Paul has made it clear that the ship will sink, and he's promised that there will be no loss of life, this is an interesting development, isn't it? See, as everyone is praying for daybreak, the sailors, the guys in charge of the ship, operating, quote, under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, what are they in actuality doing? Well, we're told they were seeking to escape from the ship. And recognizing this plan was afoot, Paul, he's proactive, isn't he? He goes to Julius and he warns that unless these men stay in the ship, the loss of life would be, would be tragic. Julius has a decision, right? And he steps up, he tells the soldiers, they cut away the ropes of the skiff, there's no escape plan now. Now, herein lies an, an interesting component when, when we talk about the promises of God, something we should consider. And, and really, this applies to kind of all promises in general. Promises are only worth something to those who believe them. I mean, any parent would understand this, right? You can promise your kid something, but it's only good if, you're, if your child believes you. If they don't believe you, the promise, in a lot of sense, kind of becomes null and void. It, it's, it's, it's worthless. If I promise you something and you don't believe me, then very likely your actions could very well nullify the promise I gave. God had promised that there would be no loss of life. But Paul's now making it clear that if these men took matters into their own hands and willfully acted in disbelief, to the promise of God, it would all be null. I hope you realize that God has made you unshakable promises. But I hope you also realize that those promises are only good if you A, believe them, and B, embrace them. Will you believe God and his promises? Will you trust him Will you allow him the time to make good on the promises he's made in his word? Or will you take matters into your own hands? Will you act out in disbelief with a lack of faith and pride, thereby nullifying God's promises, which <laughs> if you've ever done that, and we all have at some point, you end up making matters worse. Well, we're told that as day was about to dawn, Paul implored, he, he begged them all, everyone on board, to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. 
I mean, no one's really interested in eating something when you're just going to throw it up anyway. I mean, that's kind of the implication here. So Paul's like, you need to eat something. You haven't done it. I urge you to take some nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, and get yourself, you're on the boat. It's dark. There's still wind. There's still waves. The rain's hitting you in the face. It's still a pretty dicey dynamic. And there's Paul passing out food. And we're told he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. <laughs> Imagine the scene. I mean, the boldness, the, the, the courageousness of Paul. I mean, he, he goes from being a prisoner, right, to being the, the annoying guy with advice, you know, the tent maker that's pretending he's a shipmaster, giving advice of where they should port, to now it's clear. Who's the captain of this ship? It's the Apostle Paul. And here he is, not only providing this exhortation, not only providing some practical encouragement, some practical instructions. Hey, you guys need to eat. You need to take a little food. You need your strength. But imagine this moment. I mean, I mean think about the, the, the phrase and what may be implied here. Taking bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of them all. I mean, could it be, and I don't know if you can say it with, with any type of certainty, could Paul have been leading communion here on this ship? It's possible. Either way, talk about being a witness, an example in the midst of a storm. Paul's in the same storm. They're all in for a different reason, but it still is brutal for him. He's still dealing with the nausea, the seasickness, Sometimes the doubt, the concern. We know he spent time praying, interceding for the rest of the crew. I mean, Paul has been, he's in the midst of it. And yet here he is being a light, being a witness, being an example, not sitting back, not wanting to hurt people's feelings. I mean, he's taking the bull by the horns and he's getting after it. Paul's faith. I mean, it's palpable, isn't it? Paul is so certain, so confident and the promises of God, that they're all going to make it to shore, that none of them are going to die, that God's hand is very much at work. He's so confident in this. You notice what he does? He thanks God before they even dive into the water. He, he takes a moment and he prays. And his prayer is, a, is, a, is an act of thanksgiving. God, I know you're in this. I know we're all going to be safe. You know, people are putting on their life jackets. People are not sure. People are looking down at the water thinking, I can't swim. And yet Paul here, he's confident. And he's so confident, he's giving thanks to God before anyone's even standing on dry land. Do you have the same type of confidence in the midst of your storm to thank God even when you're disoriented, even when you're lost? Do you have the same kind of confidence in his promises that when we worship, you thank him because it's Jordan's banks that you stand, that there's heaven, that you're confident in it? Do you worship God even when there's not answers? Paul does, 
And it's a credible witness. And then we're told that as a result of Paul's thankfulness, Luke says, that they were all encouraged. And they took food to eat. Even the sailors, right, who had just tried to escape and leave them all high and dry. So, verse 38, when they had all eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat into the sea. This is, this is the final thing to go. This is the very reason the ship is sailing to begin with. It's an Alexandrian ship coming from Egypt to Italy. It's carrying food. You can throw everything else out, but now you're throwing the merchandise. So they lightened the ship when it was day. They did not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. So they let go of the anchors. They left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the main sail to the wind and they made for shore. This is a dramatic scene. But striking a place where the two seas met. So we've got a sandbar. They ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast such as that it was immovable. And because of the wind, the waves, the storm, we're told the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So it's clear the ship is going down. Now knowing ship, the cargo, the merch, it's all going to be lost in the sea. They lighten the ship. They throw the weed out. They're running it. They get caught. They let go of the anchors, the rudder ropes. They're in a bad spot. The ship is stuck. The back of the ship is being broken up, beaten, we're told, by the violence of the waves. And the soldier's plan at this point, at this juncture, was to kill the prisoners. <laughs> now, that's not good for Paul. And we're told that they decide to do this lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, Julius, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards, some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Seeing that in the present situation, everyone would be forced to make a swim, for sure. The soldiers are sweating bullets because they're in a really awkward situation. We're told that they plan to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. So they're fearing, as soldiers, that the prisoners could escape in the chaos of the moment, so it would just be best to kill them now so they can escape. And understand that in the first century, this is actually somewhat reasonable because the penalty for allowing a prisoner to escape your custody was that the soldier responsible would then be forced to take the prisoner's place and assume the penalties for their crime. And so none of the soldiers want to face that particular embarrassment. So they're like, Let, let's just kill them all, throw them into the water. I mean, the conspiracy's hatched. Now, Julius, who's grown fond of Paul, wanting to save him, he presents a solution to their understandable fear. We read that he commanded that those who could swim get to land first, with those who couldn't using boards and parts of the ship as flotation devices. 
What's interesting about this instruction is that uh, extra biblical history tells us that one of the prerequisites to being a Roman soldier was that you had to swim. You had to know how to swim. It was part of their training. So every Roman soldier could swim. And so the idea being presented by the commander here is, is soldiers, you go first, swim to shore. Then we'll send behind you the rest of the prisoners. They'll use boards and parts of the ship to get to land. That way the soldiers are on land, the prisoners are swimming in, and maybe there's some order as opposed to all chaos so that no one would escape. Um, It would minimize the likelihood anyway. Well, chapter 28, verse 1. When they had escaped, meaning the ship, everyone's on land, they found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives... Luke records, showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. It's winter, and they've been in the midst of a storm that's still continuing even though they're on shore. Now, it's an amazing thing that this ship navigated by nothing else, right, than the natural forces of an incredible storm ended up running itself on the shore of the island of Malta. When when you look at a map and you see Malta in context to the rest of the Mediterranean, like it's a needle in a haystack, really. The fact that by pure natural causes that this boat would end up traveling 500 miles to wash up on the shore of this particular island, which was only about 17 miles wide and nine miles long, not very large. The location of this bay, you can actually visit it today. It's called St. Paul's Bay. As we're about to see, it will become obvious that while there may have been no hand of man on the rudder of this ship for the last several weeks, the hand of God was firmly grasping the wheel. Nothing was happening outside of God's sovereign control or beyond his divine purposes. Verse 3, So they're cold, getting a fire together. Paul, when he had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt, this dude's a murderer, whom though he's escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw that no harm had come to him, they changed their minds and said that Paul must have been a god. (laughs) Imagine the scene. Like you've just survived a storm and a shipwreck. You're on this shore sopping wet. It's cold. It's still rainy. You find out that the island's Malta and and you kind of breathe a sigh of release because at least they're civilized. Like there's not cannibals or nothing. You need a fire. Paul begins to gather sticks, which I love it, right? 
Like Paul, who's been right all along, who's the de facto captain, is demonstrating a servant's heart. If I were Paul at this juncture, like I'd be sitting there being like, it's time for someone else to contribute to this mess. You guys go collect some sticks. Yet Paul's out there. He's gathering sticks for the fire. When, as he's laying them on the fire, which means he's been carrying this serpent, the heat stirs up the bundle. A serpent comes flying out of the flames, latching onto Paul's hand. What's up with that, right? Like, I'm in that moment. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Are you serious? God, really? That was your plan? Like, we arrived to Malta for this divine purpose of me dying from a viper bite? Like, this is out of control. Like, my heart, like, it wouldn't, some choice words could come out in that moment, right? I mean, a snake bite, and it's latched onto your hand and just dangling there. Freak me out, man. Snakes, no thanks. Now, the first thing we should point out is that we're told very clearly, like Luke kind of goes out of his way to make sure we're aware that the natives saw the whole thing happen. Right? They saw everything happen. They're there. They're watching Paul. They're probably collecting sticks with Paul. They see him lay the bundle. They see the viper. They see it latched to his hand. Everyone's standing there watching. Right? I mean, Paul, what's going to happen? Now, now, on a side note, here's Paul doing what? He's serving the Lord. He's being a blessing to people. He's serving people, and yet he gets bitten by a venomous viper. Like, keep in mind that serving Jesus and doing the right things does not always guarantee you won't be bitten. If you've been in ministry long enough, if you've been seeking to do the right thing long enough, snake bites are part of life. You could have been the best parent ever and still get bitten. It happens. Notice what comes next. The natives see that Paul gets snake bitten. And immediately, what are they compelled to do? Tragedy struck, and in the exact same manner as you and I, their immediate response is to do what? It's to look for a reason, an explanation. These natives need a logical and sensible explanation for the tragedy that was unfolding before them, what they were witnessing. Now, initially, the natives conclude that Paul must have, quote, been a murderer who, though he had escaped the sea, justice would not allow to live. Like, if they could cast Paul, a man that they didn't know, they didn't know at all. If they could cast Paul as being worthy of judgment, a bad guy, then the tragedy would be seen as definitive proof that he was a bad person simply experiencing the righteous judgment of God. It would make sense. Bad guy, bitten by a snake. Okay, cool, got it. Like in a philosophical sense, we'd say that they believed in this moment, Paul was experiencing a form of karmic justice. Now, 
karma states, quote, actions bring upon oneself inevitable results, good or bad, either in this life or in one's future incarnations. In other words, according to karma, karmic justice, tragedy can be rationalized. It can be seen as the just result of our past evil deeds finally calling us to account. Like in our culture, this belief in karma, it's fundamental to our rationalizing of human tragedy. We have no problem seeing Gaddafi or Saddam meeting a brutal end, right? And you know how we justify it? <laughs> what comes around goes around. I mean, they had it coming. Provides for all of us a rational purpose. He's a bad guy. He meets a bad end. Cool, I'm down. I don't grapple with that. In Paul's case, the snake bite and his soon to be painful death was simply justice for his prior misdeeds. And yet, what made this whole situation confusing for those who had witnessed it was that Paul, he didn't fall down dead, did he? But he seemingly pays little mind to the viper hanging from his hand, simply choosing to shake it off into the fire, thereby suffering no harm. I can't help it, I'm sorry. But you might say that in this moment, Paul with the viper hanging from his hand, a little song could have been going through his mind that he would just shake, 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 maybe shake it off. Shake it, shake it. Okay. It was there for the taking. I had to. It was a compulsion. Because of the surprising development. See, we'll just move right along. Because this surprising development challenged their preconceived notions about Paul. Like they expect him to die. Justice, it's happening. But he didn't. So still in this dynamic, they still need an explanation for what they were witnessing, right? So he's not a bad guy getting the just results of some misdeeds. So they conclude what? They change their minds deciding, well, since he didn't die, he must now be a God. You see how, how it swings so quickly? Interesting and in many ways ironic Thing about their particular reaction is that the natives were right about Paul's guilt, but wrong about God's judgment. Like, like the truth is that Paul had been a murderer. Right, right. I mean, remember their conclusion? Oh, the storm, the shipwreck, now the viper. He must have been a murderer. That's their conclusion, right? The irony. Paul had been a murderer. The truth is that karmic justice absolutely required that Paul pay for these transgressions. However, what the natives didn't understand was that the justice of God towards Paul's murderous sins, his evil past, had already been satisfied on the cross of Calvary. Jesus had already experienced the real snake bite 
on Paul's behalf. Jesus had already died in Paul's place as a result of the deadly venom. Divine justice had already been satisfied on Paul's account. His debt had been paid. And the tragedy they were witnessing was simply the result of the natural sting of life and not evidence of God's judgment. God's judgment had already been doled out and met. Now, what I find powerful about this story is that the way Paul handled being snake-bitten, you might say how he handled tragedy, demonstrated a divine power unnatural to mortal man that these natives could tangibly witness, right? Remember how it happens. Paul gets bit, tragedy, oh, he must have deserved it. He doesn't die. Well, that's weird. He must now be a god, which means that they're recognizing that a normal man isn't bitten, reacts in such a way, and doesn't die. So everything they're concluding about Paul and how it all unfolds lends them to reach the idea like, this is weird, this is unnatural, this is not normal. Somehow, in some way, this is supernatural. Well, Paul was clearly no god. It was true that he suffered no harm in the midst of this tragedy. Why? Because the snake's venom had no power. Why? It didn't have any power as a direct result of a lasting, permanent work Jesus had already did for him. He wasn't being judged. It wasn't the results of his poor choices. Please keep in mind, the world watches with greater attention when the followers of Jesus suffer harm. You know why? Because they want to see how we'll react. The truth is that our reactions when faced with personal tragedy, a plight that no man is ever immune from, is the quickest, most profound way we, as pilgrims, can differentiate ourselves from the rest of the world without answers. And it's when we react to the snake bite of life and the manner like Paul that the world gets what? A glimpse into something otherworldly. They receive in that moment a peek into the divine. They witness the light of God shining brightly beneath the veil of our human flesh and weakness. In that moment, they thought Paul was a God, but they had gotten a glimpse of God, Jesus, working through his life. Recently, I saw an incredible example of this play out on my TV screen. As many of you know, on the evening of June 17th, a young man by the name of Dylan Roof entered the Emmanuel AME Church in downtown Charleston. He attended the service for about an hour before proceeding to open fire, killing nine innocent people. Two days after his arrest, June 19th, Dylan Roof appeared in court via video for his arraignment. And it was during this time that some of the victim's families, this is just two days later, were allowed to address the accused. I happened to watch part of what took place. Maybe some of you can relate. I happened to watch it as part of the broadcast of a Fox News show called The Five. 
I want to play the video, guys. Also appearing in court were the families of those so callously slain by this murderous thug. They chose not to condemn and seek vengeance, but to forgive and offer prayers. They asked God to have mercy on his soul. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And, and I'll never be the same. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. But as we say in Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. I too thank you on the behalf of my family for not allowing hate to win. For me, I'm a work in progress, and I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing the pain has always joined in in our family with is that she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. I pray God on your soul. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. I forgive you, and I forgive you. So, KG, that was, that was heart-wrenching, listening to six or seven family members of the victims, and almost all of them, if not all of them, to the T, said, I forgive you, even though in just literally a day and a half after their, their family members were slain, they're still, they're, they're that forgiving. It's powerful, isn't it? I mean, their words, their reaction, their demonstration of forgiveness, their witness for Jesus, right? It's moving. Like, it's powerful. I can see many of the tears already, like, in your eyes. But, but why I bring this up is that as I'm watching, as I'm watching this show, it was one of the reactions of one of the panelists on The Five to this video that, that just caught my attention. Greg Gutfeld was raised a Catholic. Today, he is an outspoken atheist. But I want, so they go around, and he's the last one to comment about what you just saw. And I want to play for you his reaction. It's really interesting. Uh, that might have been the most powerful expression of any human emotion I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, I will never be that good. And I, we witnessed unmitigated pure evil and that to me is like the most the, the best example of what is good that i've ever seen in my life and i you know i am not religious but i see this and i can't you know begin to understand like does religion make great people or do great people go to religion i don't know all i know is what i saw i can't even understand i can't even comprehend that it's so beyond me and and so amazing i'm, I'm gobsmacked Why does God willingly allow tragedy to befall good people? His people. 
Why did God allow Dylan Roof to brutally execute nine of not just Americans, but our brothers and sisters? People that, that, that we'll spend eternity with. Why did God allow Paul to be caught in a storm, to be shipwrecked, and then to be bitten by a, a viper? Why? You know what? I'm not going to stand here and, and give you like this definitive, satisfying answer to that question. I can't do it. I can't, I can't explain to you why at least in a way that would be satisfying. But there are two things I can say with full confidence. First, those men and women in that church that night were loved by God. And that night, they entered the glories of heaven, hearing from Jesus, their Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. Sure, those folks experienced what we might call a tragic end to their earthly lives. But I can promise you that they awoke to great reward with zero regrets. You see, in the end, the venom of that great serpent, that serpent of old, proved to be powerless over their destiny. Why? because Jesus had already satisfied the judgment for their sin. I can say that with confidence. The second thing I can say with total certainty, though it is a right thing that we mourn the loss of those families, it has become obvious, hasn't it, that the way the good and godly people of that church have handled this incredible tragedy has gloriously demonstrated the supernatural power of God to a dark world without answers. Isn't it interesting that Greg Gutfeld closes that I'm God smacked? I don't think it was a slip of the tongue because I think God was trying to speak through the darkness into his life. The way that church community has showed forgiveness and love in the midst of unspeakable pain. It's given our world a glimpse of the Jesus that we know, the Jesus that we serve, the Jesus that we have already laid down our lives for. In our culture, we have a lot of things that's defined as Christian that we're repulsed by, that we're like, that doesn't represent me at all. Like I am part of this Christian minority of people where everything labeled Christian, I'm, I'm just disturbed by. Not that. I stand up for that. That represents the Jesus I know. That's the type of change my Jesus makes in a life and in a heart. And it was because their public reaction was not normal. Greg Gutfeld admitted it. What would have been normal? Vindictiveness, anger towards the accused. But because they forgave him, many people were forced to ask themselves a question. How is that even possible? Please understand, since our lives have been transformed by Jesus and we've been given the promise of eternity, our perspective on the human experience, including tragedy, should be different. 
Sure, Jesus never promised his followers that we would be immune from the snake bite of life. But he has promised that that snake would have no venom. For the believer, tragedy, it's really not all that tragic. Because in the end, as Paul, we too will suffer no harm. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. I echo it, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But we're told that in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that his father lay sick of fever and dysentery. So Paul went in and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. And when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as was necessary. Could you find at this juncture in our story a better example of hindsight being 2020? I mean, the storm makes sense, doesn't it? It was necessary to get them to Malta. They would never have gone that direction. 500 miles off course. The shipwreck makes total sense, right? I mean, if they were able to have docked at Malta, they would have had all the provisions they would have needed. They wouldn't have needed the hospitality of the natives. Paul would have never been collecting sticks for a fire. The snake bite now makes sense because it was used by God to demonstrate his power working in and through the life of Paul, which provided him this incredible encounter and ministry opportunity. We're told that not only did the father of Publius receive healing, but Luke says, quote, the rest of those on the island came and were healed. What we have described is a revival taking place on this little island. The storm, the shipwreck, the snake bite, it was all God's plan because God had a work he wanted to do in the lives of those people. This morning, I close with this. If you find yourself suffering a tragedy, if you find yourself experiencing a storm, a life storm, please consider how was it that Paul gained an audience with Publius? How was it that all of this was initiated? How was it that God's will played out in a glorious end? What was the journey? What did it look like? Friend, Paul, he had to endure a storm that brought him to the island. He had to survive a shipwreck that got him to shore. He had to live through a snake bite so that word could spread about a man and whom the power of God dwelt. The world is watching how you handle tragedy. The world doesn't need advice on how to handle the party. We all get it. But when the snake bites, and when the wind blows, and when the ship wrecks, the world has no answers which is why when we respond like Paul, the world 
has to consider how. In your situation, are people getting a glimpse of Jesus through your suffering? 